You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 88, a keynote from Jody Hasich Sanchez. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Well, I am so happy to be back with you, and Sandy and I have been so busy with our professional responsibilities that we have just been missing each other to schedule studio time, and so I am apologizing for our delay in getting this episode out to you. However, we will be back to our normal every other Thursday schedule here as of now. And we are glad to be back because today, an important keynote presentation from Jody Hassett Sanchez, which we are thrilled to be able to bring you. Jody Hassett Sanchez was the keynote speaker at the Global Center for Women and Justice's More Priceless Than Diamonds Luncheon, this past September 2014. She is an acclaimed news and documentary producer with over 17 years of experience in network television, most recently at ABC. She's covered religion, culture, and education for ABC's World News Tonight with Peter Jennings and filed stories for Nightline. And prior to joining ABC News, Hasich Sanchez traveled the globe with CNN for almost 12 years as the State Department producer. Jody is the president of Pointy Shoe Productions, a documentary and long-form TV production company, and most recently directed and produced the film Sold, Fighting the New Global Slavery. And so here is the keynote that Jody Hassett Sanchez presented to us. I just got to eat about half of that incredible lunch, and I have to tell you, it reminds me of the same kind of dinner I put on the table every night for my family back in Washington, D.C. Okay, so that's a slight exaggeration. But um, what it does bring to mind is uh, what happens every night at dinner with my five-year-old son, who's become become quite quite the pro at parsing what's on his plate and immediately jettisoning anything that's healthy. And I have tried all the tips you read in the child-rearing books, like saying, hey, it's superpower food, which he, of course, then rolls his eyes and say, mom, I'm not falling for that one. Um, I think we're, we're here today to talk about another kind of eat your vegetables topic, slavery. It's something that we all feel like we should know about and educate ourselves about, but it's so daunting and it's so depressing And it's so exhaustive, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? Here's what I'm going to tell you today. Here's what I want you to know. First of all, I will join in the congratulations to each of you for coming out on this beautiful, sunny afternoon in Southern California to sit through a talk about slavery and to hear from some of these extraordinary people doing work right here in Orange County. What I will not do is inundate you you with a string of excuse me, disturbing stories about slavery because I don't really think that that's the way that you affect change. And I was very intentional in my film about not just telling sad stories but profiling people who are making a difference. Um, What I will share is 
how I came to spend several years creating this documentary about three modern-day abolitionists, what I learned along the way, and how I became convinced that one person can make a difference. So while I speak, feel free to finish your vegetables. Um, <clears throat> the creative spark behind my documentary was the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade. As many of you here today probably know, it took a broad coalition of religious and political groups, as well as a dose of enlightenment, faith, and social progress to fundamentally change Great Britain's thinking about the slave trade. William Wilberforce and John Newton, who wrote, later wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, were perhaps the best known of these reformers at the time. And these English activists, they played the long game. They weren't just trying to change a law. They were actually trying to change the thinking of an entire country. Because what you need to remember is at that time, slavery was viewed as, as a matter of commerce. It fueled Europe's entire industrial revolution, and it was also behind really the settlement of the lot of the New World. So at that time, most people thought about slavery as a financial necessity. And what intrigued me about Wilberforce, Newton, and all of their colleagues is that they had very different views on all sorts of political and, frankly, theological religious issues. But they managed to put those differences aside to come together and work on this one issue. Now, I live in Washington, D.C., and that's not something you see happening there a whole lot these days. Um, they had to know that this was going to be a long and a bruising battle to persuade their countrymen that slavery was not just an economic issue, but a moral issue. And I think the abolitionist group going on in the same century in this country was similarly made up of different groups who had very different ideas about many things. If you think about the free blacks in the North, they didn't always see eye to eye with a Quaker abolitionist who certainly didn't agree with groups like the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women, who in the 1830s demanded, gasp, racial and gender equality. I think there are two takeaways from this history for us today. You and I have inherited an indisputable conviction that enslaving another human being is evil. But that wasn't always the case. Remember that for 2,000 years, people of faith actually spoke of and thought of sin as a kind of slavery. It's only been in the last 200 years that we have reached this consensus that slavery is in fact a sin. So it's worth stopping, I think, and being thankful that so many people who came before us have, have worked and wrestled with the ideas and really died in this fight to end slavery. I think the second takeaway is from this history is this notion that individuals and groups who disagreed on so many things actually were able to overlook those differences and create what was really the first human rights campaign in the world. This is gonna to have to happen again, I think, if we wanna galvanize the moral conscience of our world today. Sadly, people like Nick Kristof, the columnist for the New York Times, um, writes that two of the most conservative, I mean, two of the most effective activists on this issue today, liberal feminists and conservative Christians, can't even agree on a shared vocabulary to describe the problem, much less to join together to fight it. 
When I first set out to research this topic back in 2006, I had been a network journalist. I'd reported from around the globe, lots of conflict zones, hot spots in the developing world. I thought I knew what was happening in most places. I was really embarrassed quite soon to realize how little I really understood about modern day, the modern day slave trade and how globalization has actually fueled this multi-billion dollar business. I quickly learned that there's more slavery in the world today than ever before. And as we sit here in this beautiful place having this fantastic lunch, there are as many as 27 million men, women, and children across the globe who suffer in some form of slavery right now. If you prefer a more precise number, just think about 20 million. 20 million people. That's the number that's put out by the International Labor Organization. It's the number that Secretary of State John Kerry uses when he introduced the 2014 Trafficking in Persons Report, an annual survey put out by the State Department about what countries um, are the best and which are the worst when it comes to fighting modern-day slavery. But just let that sit for a minute, 20 million people. That's all of Southern California. If you think about everything on the 405 in, that's everybody in the mountains, everybody in the ocean, Every, well, not the ocean, on the, on the beach, everyone on the 405 that you're trying to pass, and everyone in between. That's how many people today, men, women, children, don't have the freedoms that we have, are, are, are working, suffering in situations that they are not able to escape. 20 million people. I also learned in the course of researching this film that uh, the buying and selling of humans now is perhaps even more brutal than it was 200 years ago. Back then, when you purchased a slave, it, was, it would cost you about the equivalent of $40,000 today. So you would actually be making what was a lifelong investment. So while it sounds counterintuitive, owners would take a minimal care of those slaves because they wanted to keep them alive so they could continue to work for a long period of time. That's not the case today. Today's slaves, slaves are far cheaper to purchase. About, you can get a slave in a lot of the world for maybe $90, even less. So as a result, the slaves today are far more expendable. In 2014, a child who's sold is more likely to be horrendously abused for a few years than cast aside or worse when no longer productive. I also realized, and I was so glad to hear from this amazing young lady today and her faith, that religion and slavery have been intertwined for good and for ill since day one. If you, if you visited a church in the American South and some other places 200 years ago, you'd probably, there's a good chance you'd hear a sermon using biblical passages that encourage slaves to be obedient. And today, if for any reason you happen to go to a country such as the African country of Mauritania, you will hear religious leaders there using the Koran to justify what is the highest incident of slavery in the world today, in Mauritania. Yet in both of these places, the American South 200 years ago and in Mauritania today, you have extraordinary people of faith who are, were and are on the front lines fighting this, this battle against modern-day slavery fighting this battle to abolish slavery. And that's really why I chose to profile people of faith in my film. The three abolitionists working in India, Pakistan, and West Africa aren't really interested in debating their theological differences. 
All they're interested in is ending slavery in our lifetimes, and each of them are convinced we can do so. I truly admire how what they believe is completely integrated into what they do, and it's also why they're willing to be beaten up, beaten up and threatened on a regular basis. A Hindu, a Christian, and a Muslim. And yet they each believe that every individual is created in the image of a creator, which is why none of us should ever own another human being. In the film, the three abolitionists speak eloquently about how ch the child slaves that they rescue actually find it easier to recover from the physical brutalities than from the psychological and the spiritual wounds of having been enslaved. And Frederick Douglass, whose descendants are with us today, a few of them, I met them earlier. Um, Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery to become an extraordinary statesman and social reformer in this country 200 years ago, he described this same agony, uh, writing about how when he was enslaved, quoting, my natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me, and behold, a man transformed into a brute. I think it's this question of, this question of human dignity, which is central to the film, and I think it's the real reason we have to work together to end slavery in the 21st century, human dignity. About halfway through Seoul, there's, this, there's a scene of these children from Togo who were all former slaves. They're dancing, they're singing, screaming, with a kind of joy and abandon that only children can, can possess. And it's really hard when you see that scene to believe that each of them had endured years of brutality as bonded workers. And while you're watching them on the screen, you hear the audio from this extraordinary Pakistani bishop and he tells us, human dignity is absolutely fundamental to this issue. What is it that gives them a dignity that cannot be taken away? That question can't be answered in utilitarian or economic terms. It has to be answered spiritually. That's it. No sermons, no long discourses, a simple scene in the film of children dancing and a quiet comment about the centrality of human dignity. But I can't tell you how many people who've come to screenings of the film later share with me how this one scene changed their, the way they think about the entire issue of modern day slavery. To them, it's no longer just about economics or education or globalization, although all of these things are certainly factors. Now, the stories in my film may seem like they, and they do, they take to place in places very far away from this seems to me when I come here, a very perfect place, Orange County. Um, the stories are all happening in countries that some of you might not feel any connection to at all. But I want to encourage you today to consider that there's a, there's a world larger than the one that you inhabit. I like that idea. As a parent, as parents, and I think there's a lot of us in the room today, we spent more than $26 billion in the United States this fall on back-to-school shopping. And there's a human cost to some of that shopping and some of that spending. Many of those purchases were stitched in Bangladeshi sweatshops, not far from the factory that collapsed last year, killing more than 1,000 
workers, many of them children. This morning I was grabbing my um, coffee at the little shop here at the resort, and while they were making it, I was looking around at the things for sale, and I saw this baseball hat. And it says, American Needle. And it says inside, I mean, everything suggesting America, America. I thought, that's great. It says American Needle inside. And then I went to look uh, at this label here, and it says, Made in Bangladesh, on the other side. So get a sticker, but it's all made in Bangladesh. And a lot of times when I work and talk to kids in schools, I ask them to just look at their t-shirt and their shirts and their sneakers and just see where every item they have is made. And I encourage you all to do that when you're talking to your kids about this. And let me tell you a little bit more of that in a minute, because it doesn't mean it's necessarily made by slave labor. But there's a good way to start a conversation and then to find out whether it was or not. Um, so we spent $26 million billion getting our kids ready to go back to school this year. We bought them clothing. We also spend a lot of money on electronics, um, iPads, phones, all different things like that. Most of those devices are made in Asia. What you need to know is that today, half of all the child slaves in the world work in Asia. So check out the companies that are making those, those items that you're, that you're purchasing. Some of you are football fans. I'm unfortunately married to one. Um, I love him. It's unfortunate that he's a football fan, not that I'm married to him. Um, he's a great husband. Um, actually, it's the fantasy part that I have a problem with. So some of you football fans might already be making plans for the 2016 Super Bowl, which is going to be just a little bit north of here in San Francisco. Slave traders know that these major sporting events are perfect opportunities to bring in children and adults who were then forced into prostitution or made to work in restaurants or hotels for no pay. So who are the individuals who end up in these situations, who end up in a beautiful city like San Francisco or a place like Orange County? You heard one story today. There are many, many more. Many are people who are tricked to travel here from impoverished countries by traffickers who falsely promised them good paying jobs, a better life but tens of thousands of vulnerable Americans are also trafficked every year. Often they're runaways, or they've answered an online ad or responded to something on Facebook. The slavery industry thrives on the fear and the reticence of its victims. But here's what I want you to hear. It also survives because so many of us think that this brutal trade in human flesh is combined to places like Cambodia or that the stateside slavery only involves you know, Nigerian nannies or uh, Eastern European prostitutes who actually choose to come here. Not the case. Maybe it's easier for us to think that this only happens far away or in big cities or in high crime areas like the reruns of Law and Order that we watch at night. But as you just saw in that elegantly simple video, which I really liked because it didn't uh, dwell on it's just an elegantly, it's an elegant video, so I applaud those of you who made that. Um, 226 victims of human trafficking were rescued right here in Orange County last year. That's just the number who were freed. So many more stories we don't know, so many more who are still enslaved today. So many are children, the same age as our own. Children who should be getting ready for soccer practice, doing their homework. Instead, some of them, they're forced to have sex as much as 20 to 50 times a day. The average age of a girl in the commercial sex trade in the United States, 
12 to 14 years old. For boys, it's 11 to 13 years old. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I promised you at the beginning that I would not shock you with a litany of horrific anecdotes. Those stories are easy to find online. And one reason I left the news business is because I wearied of contributing to what I see as our collective compassion fatigue, feeling we hear all these things and there's nothing we can do about it. I didn't want to produce any more stories about what's wrong in the world, because there's an endless supply. I wanted to tell stories that point to the possibility for change. And I suspect that's why my film Sold continues to resonate with audiences around the world. It's now been broadcast in more than 60 countries and screened more than a thousand campuses, festivals, and um, events somewhat like this. And I'm so thankful that I got to tell these stories in the film. But what really pleases me is how audiences respond to the film. Some viewers want to reach out directly to the former child slaves in the movie. Others want to support the abolitionists in their work. Still others educate themselves about what's happening in their own cities and get involved locally. So, what can you do? You've heard some great suggestions here today, and I think the best thing you can do is find out, talk to these folks who know what's happening right down the street from where we are. So go up and chat with some of the nominees today for the awards. Find out how you can learn more about their work and how you can support them. What's also great is there's folks around the country and organizations who've given their life to this cause. And what I encourage you to do, if you find an organization that touches your heart, check them out on Charity Navigator. It's a great website that tells you how much of the money that you give that organization actually goes to the cause versus overhead advertising or salaries. It's an excellent place to get some perspective on whether it's a legitimate organization or not. Because even on this topic, there are groups that are looking to um, take advantage of the situation. Um, if you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, and we know there's some of those in the room today, check out Kevin Bale's online TED Talk. It's one of the most, um, the mo I think it's been watched several million times. But Kevin Bales, who's one of the foremost writers and thinkers on um, anti-slavery today, uh, talks about the business side of slavery. And he actually makes the case that slavery can be completely stopped around the world in the next 30 years for less than $20 billion. It's an interesting argument. And when you think $20 billion, that's a much cheaper price tag than we've already spent on so many other social problems just in this country. If you're a fashionista, and judging from many of the outfits here today and all the snazzy shops that tempted me yesterday, um, I think a lot of you are. If you're interested in fashion, uh, Katie Ford, the daughter of Eileen Ford of Ford Models, is doing some really smart work about supply chain issues. Places like The Gap and other retailers have folks working full-time to ensure that their factories around the world do not have any forced labor. So check out where you shop. Ask about their policies. Find out where the items that you're buying are made. One of the things you can do is go to that trafficking persons report online, see what the, where the country is, see the status of the country where you purchased that item. Find out what kind of slave labor they have there. Think about it before you buy it. And as you heard earlier, as you go and live in, about your daily lives here in Orange County, pay attention next time you're at the nail salon. Try and talk to the person who works for your gardening service, or maybe the janitorial company, the 
guy working at your office. Today's slaves aren't all working in massage parlors or brothels. If you see something that doesn't look right, doesn't feel right, call the national hotline number. One person can make a difference. I'm convinced of it. Thank you. Sandy and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. We hope you found value in this keynote presentation from Jody, and we hope that you'll stay connected with us too. And the best way to connect with us directly is our email address, gcwj at vanguard.edu. You can also reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. And you may not know that we have a Facebook page set up, which is very active and lots of information always up there about the center. So just hop onto Facebook and search for the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University, and you'll find us. And we look forward to connecting with you there. Have a great week, and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care.